It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's the opening of Inauguration Week, or uh, Coronation Week? Is are we, are we crowning a king, or are we uh, inaugurating a president? Is that the right verb, inaugurating? Ay, ay, ay. Got a great program lined up today, folks. One of those weeks where uh, the news kind of drives a little bit of what we got to do here. Bishop Gene Robinson has uh, invoked a foreign deity. We will be playing his invocation here, although the audio quality isn't all that good. But the wonderful thing about the Internet is that it allows you to uh, get stuff in real time. You know, if uh, the, the whole YouTube blog phenomena has created a new media, and uh, of course, you know, Pirate Christian Radio is part of that new media, and uh, so we we've been able to collect, we're able to collect stuff just as good as just about any other reporter out there. I mean, it's good stuff. Anyway, um, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and uh, I am your servant in Jesus Christ here to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to basically compare what's being said out there in the name of religion, spirituality, and Christianity and compare it to the Word of God to see if uh, the two jive, the two mesh, the two flow together, if they are synonymous, one and the same, if what is being spoken out there in the name of Jesus Christ is the truth, or if it's, uh, how, how do we put, tampered with, you know, remember back when uh, the the whole Tylenol scare that and you know people were tampering with Tylenol, I remember it well. Yes, yeah, you remember that, and and so they had to come up with tamper proof or tamper resistant uh, bottles, you know, for Tylenol and, and Advil and stuff like that. Now we have all these tamper resistant things. Yeah, and it's on every it's peanut butter, everything tamper resistant peanut well, butter. You know, it has a plastic lid. On, oh, that's on, right, I mean, or that aluminum or whatever it is. That yep, I know what you're talking about. Well, you know, it, they had a big uh, peanut butter recall last week from was it salmonella and you know. Anyway, I I try to keep up with regular news too. I you know what's funny is there was a time in my life, in my married life, where my wife was pretty much. Uh, completely disconnected from current affairs and i would have to keep her apprised as to what was going on in the world and uh and now it's kind of switched i i'm like uh, i know all things religion news but uh i keep falling behind on on like just normal everyday news you know that remember last week they they had the guy that uh that uh landed the plane in the hudson river in, in new york city well you, you know when i found out about it almost like 24 hours later Apparently, I was living in the uh, in the Bat Cave or something like that, you know, doing my discernment Batman duties. Or you sure you what's watching The Simpsons at night instead of the news? Yeah, I, I'm not a big Simpsons guy. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, and, and, and people, I hope you don't uh, don't hate me for this, but my bed. I, I'm an insomniac, so I have a hard time sleeping at night. But uh, normally I go to bed about eight eight thirty because uh, you know by eleven thirty midnight I'm back up again, and so and you would think that I would be watching the news or something like that, but you know I if it's not on my TiVo I'm not really all that interested in watching live television, so <clears throat> yeah I kind of fall behind on some things. But this week um, is inauguration week, so it's a it's a big important thing that's going on. We got Rick Warren's prayer tomorrow. Right before uh, the swear, the swearing, uh, the swearing in, 
Okay, I got to be careful here. <laughs> before I start swearing, <laughs> right before the swearing in of uh, Barack Obama. And so that's going to be important. And funny enough, uh, somebody, Stephen Archer, sent me an email uh, on Facebook. And this was a, a week and a half, two weeks ago. And uh, he, he was basically, he sent me a bunch of quotes from Barack Obama regarding his views on religion. And funny enough, did some, did some researching, did some digging. And I found on the internet from March of 2004, so this is before Barack Obama had even thrown his hat into the ring that he was going to be uh, running for uh, running for the president of the United States. And, uh, and he talks at length about his religious beliefs. And so we're going to be reading large segments of that uh, interview that he did with the Chicago Sun Tribune. And uh, it, the, the name of the gal who interviewed, she calls herself God Girl. She's a religion columnist for uh, for that newspaper. And so we're going to be reading large segments of that because I think it's it's interesting to uh, start to get a radar fix on what it is that uh, our new president believes. And I think it's important as Christians that we exercise a little bit of discernment here. And did you know that Joe Farah from World Net Daily has weighed in? He did a column that's uh, been published basically saying he's praying against Barack Obama and that he prays that his uh, presidency is a complete failure. That's <laughs> true. But, uh, and with with all of that in mind, I think we'll dive into today's program. Although, you know what? At Pirate Christian Radio, we we added a new section to our uh, to our store. Did you know that? Store. Yeah, the store well, to the store. Why? Well, because Pirate Christian Radio more than ever you know, is uh, is listener supported, and so we're we're looking for ways to. Uh, help uh, fund our operation and make it so that we can pay our bills and stay on the air. And so we added a, a section, uh, a merchandise section to our, the store today, and it's kind of the first pass through. We've we've had, uh, let's just say, a dissatisfying experience working with companies out there regarding uh, T-shirt sales and stuff like that. So we've, we've opened up a Cafe Press uh, T-shirt and merchandise account. We got a couple of uh, coffee mugs for sale, and some T-shirts that are for sale. So if you've always, if you've been dying to have a Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt or sweatshirt, n- now's the time. Go to piratechristianradio.com and click on store. You'll see the photographs of some of the T-shirts that we're offering for sale that uh, help underwrite Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, and one of them, only one of the T-shirts is actually two-sided. Apparently, the dark the the dark black ones they're not two-sided, but we have one that's a light colored gray one that uh, is two-sided. So take a look at that, and if you are interested in supporting Pirate Christian Radio, we've now given you another way to do it. So uh, look forward to uh, to that, and then to the people that we owe T-shirts to, we can finally get them out. <laughs> finally. All right, uh, listener email. Aaron writes, and he says, uh, Chris, I listened to the review of the James Bond sermon on uh, Friday's show, and it was sad. The, the, that was uh, the, the Quantum of Solace uh, sermon from Kerry Shook Ministries, and he's the uh, head teaching pastor at Therapy of the Woodlands. Yeah, yeah Therapy, <laughs> the, of, therapy the, of the Woodlands. Much more appropriate. Hi, yeah, yeah, and, and, and uh, anyway, he says this speech. I hesitate to call it a sermon. Seemed like nothing more than a cribbing of Sigmund Freud, Robert Bly's Iron John, and humanistic psychology with a spiritual sheen on it that would have made Carl Rogers happy. And then he remember when uh, Carrie shook in the in the uh, 
we, we do we call it a sermon? No. Um, self help pep talk, group therapy, guided group therapy speech. Um, he said that Satan fears our hearts. You, you remember? Well, Aaron from Holland, Michigan, he says Satan fears my heart? Question mark. With an you know an exclamation point too. He says, "Come on, prior to salvation, Satan owned my heart." <laughs> Great point. Yes. And you know why is it that we do these? Uh, sermon reviews well the reason why is because um, there's been a profound change within the Christian church and it has uh, impacted the preaching in America as well as uh, countries abroad you know Rick Warren is very happy to point out the fact that, that he's trained just about half a million pastors around the world how to be purpose driven and uh, that being the case it's uh, that's I don't I don't consider that to be a good statistic because a lot of these purpose driven seeker sensitive guys have completely chucked the actual preaching and teaching of God's word. All right, now Nathan writes. This is Nathan Bins, okay. And uh, last week I was I had read something that Nathan had emailed me and wasn't sure if he was the Nathan from the Calvinist website. And the answer to the question is no, he's not. Uh, that would be Nathan. Uh, hang on a second here. Nathan Bingham. Okay. Nathan Bingham is not to be confused with Nathan Bins. I just want everyone to know that. And so uh, Nathan Bins writes, he he says, dear Mr. Stone's throw. Hey, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. <clears throat> Creativity points get you somewhere here. In fact, I, it, you're more likely to get your email read on the air if you completely mangle my name. Why? But is it, is it trademarked? <laughs> no, he didn't trademark it. Oh. Maybe he didn't want to pay the money. But, you know, he's from Australia. Oh. So how, you know, can an Aussie uh, trademark in the United States? I, I don't I, I'm sure there's a way know. they can do that. Anyways, uh, Nathan Bins writes, he says, just letting you know, although my name is Nathan, I am a Calvinist and I do live in Australia. He says, I am not the Nathan, Nathan from the Calvin whatever website. That's Calvinist. It's really spelled interestingly. I am the Nathan from the Christian bookstore, uh, from the book, Christian bookstore email that, uh, from a while back. And remember, he uh, was talking about that they were selling John Crowder's books. And uh, he had a crisis of conscience. Now I understand. It says, it would seem that you have two different Nathans listening to your show. And you know what they say. Two young Australian Calvinists named Nathan listening to your show are better than one. Apparently, that's this is this is actually a very traditional saying. It goes all the way back to early 2009. Did you know that? Uh, Nathan, thank you for uh, clean, clearing that up. And I apologize for confusing you with Nathan Bingham. And I think what threw me there, because you got to understand, I'm old. Now, although somebody said that I wasn't old enough to have a 17-year-old daughter, believe me, I am. Um, Nathan Bins, Nathan Bingham, you guys need to uh, have some, you, you young Australian Calvinists need to do a better job of, of you know, cleaning up your last names because you're confusing uh, <clears throat> Americans like me. Anyway, side throw that in there. And then I got an email from young lad Ben Mordecai. I've read his stuff before. He emailed me on Facebook regarding Stephen Furtick. Stephen Furtick has a uh, blog post at his blog called Malpractice. And and Ben writes, and he was pretty excited. He thought, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe that uh, Stephen Furtick gets it. And uh, l- l- let's see if uh, Stephen Furtick gets it. You remember Stephen Furtick? He's the one who was berating everybody for wanting to come to church and expecting to be fed. Yeah, okay. I mean, how dare you come to church and expect to be fed? Anyway, uh, he says, this is what Stephen Furtick writes from his blog post entitled Malpractice. 
when people visit the doctor, they expect a direct and accurate diagnosis. If the physician doesn't identify the disease and recommend drastic enough measures, it's called malpractice. So far, so good. I'm, I'm in agreement with uh, Stephen Furtick right now. But when people come to church and the preacher diagnoses sin, recommending the radical remedy called repentance, people are, off, uh, people are offended. They call it intolerant, narrow-minded, and judgmental. Okay, so now I'm already going, mm, we got a problem. Why? Well, sin is the correct diagnosis. I'll grant Stephen Furtick that. But is the remedy repentance? John, what do you think? You think it's the remedy is repentance? In maybe, in part, maybe that's half that's half right. Let me read the rest of the story. Uh, this uh, blog post. He says they call it intolerant, narrow-minded, and judgmental. I don't want to stand before God one day, guilty of spiritual malpractice. I want to diagnose sin as sin, no matter who doesn't want to hear it. I must command people to repent in the name of Jesus for their own good and for the glory of God. If you're sleeping with someone that you're not married to, you've got a disease. The only remedy is repentance. I won't excuse you because you really love them. Real love does what's right, not what feels right. If you're not putting God first in your finances, you're robbing God. You need to know that. It's like a tumor that we've got to remove immediately. And if you are full of bitterness... I can't justify and excuse your lethal, your lethal heart condition by blaming it on your past. We've got to cut you open and operate right away. Otherwise, I'm no gospel preacher. I'm just a quack. So what do you think? You, you think that uh, Stephen Furty gets it? Is uh, He's correctly diagnosed the problem as sin. And in this little blog post, I would even say that He's doing a fairly decent job of preaching the law to expose sin. Okay. But is he giving the right um, remedy? Is repentance the remedy? What do you think? You think it is? Well, let's take a look at one of my uh, <clears throat> stump. And it's now become like one of my staple uh, passages of scripture that we go through here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, Luke chapter 24. And we're going to look toward the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 24. Oh, wow, I've got context here. I don't want any context. All right, here we go. Luke 24. All right. <clears throat> okay. Starting at verse 46, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am with you, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus says that we're to proclaim <coughs> repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, Stephen, Cor uh, Stephen Furtick here is saying that uh, if he didn't preach repentance, he wouldn't be a gospel preacher. Did you hear any gospel in that blog post? I, I sure didn't. There wasn't any gospel in there. In fact, he was just talking about the need to repent and that they've got to cut out the sin. Um, but it overlooks the most important aspect of the remedy, and that's the forgiveness of sins. Because the only remedy for our sins is Christ crucified for our sins. Because I guarantee you, um, let's see, what did he put this? He, um, he says that if, you have, if you're full of bitterness, I can't justify or excuse your lethal heart condition by blaming it on your past. 
we've got to cut you open and operate right away. Um, but uh, do our pastors capable of operating spiritually? I mean, can we can we cut somebody open and do a bitternessectomy? <laughs> I, 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 I don't think so. It sounds painful. And do you need to use an anesthesia when doing it? Uh, maybe. I, I don't know. But see, the thing is, is that he's not a gospel preacher if the only thing he is preaching is repentance. Because re- preaching repentance is just you need to you need to clean up your act. You need to stop doing what you're doing. Law. 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 There's no gospel there. So it's repentance and. And what is repentance? It's a change of mind. It's uh, That's really ultimately, when you boil the word down, metanoia, what it comes down to. It's no longer excusing yourself and saying that it's okay what I'm doing. No, it's not okay. I, I admit, I confess that I am a sinner. And then what I did is a sin. And the only solution then at that point is to proclaim and trust in the forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins. Not that you need to try harder. Okay, or that your pastor needs to cut something out of you. So I find it interesting that uh, Stephen Furtick on his blog considers himself to be a gospel preacher and is concerned about malpractice, but he's correctly diagnosed the problem as sin, but he's not giving the uh, correct biblical solution. So there we go. Anyway, I thought that was really good. Ben, great email. Okay. All right. This is a little bit of a of a lesson here. Uh, have any of you all read uh, Tony Jones's book? Tony Jones of the Emergent Church, former the the former director of the uh, of of the of Emergent Village, the Emergent Church movement, which is supposed to be leaderless. He's the former leader of the leaderless Emergent Church network, and uh, at uh, Emergent Village, and now he's resigned uh, for some particular reason. Recently? Recently. He stepped down from his position, and the only explanation that was given was pretty an unsatisfactory one, which makes you go, hmm, I bet you there's more to the story. <laughs> anyway, um, Tony Jones of the Emergent Church Movement, he has a book called The New Christians. And in The New Christians, he tries to make a case that uh, the Emergent Church Movement is neither conservative nor liberal but that it seeks a middle path between the two. And, and, and you know, some have described this almost in Clintonian words. What was Clinton's thing? He said he had a third way. Remember that? Anyway, so uh, Tony Jones has kind of picked up on some of that. These emergent postmoderns, basically, you know, they'll say that there's, there's things that are wrong with liberals and there's things that are wrong with conservatives. And they, they're shooting to kind of synthesize the two, which, by the way, is uh, very Hegelian. Now, if you don't know what Hegelian philosophy is, the basic gist of it goes something like this, that humanity is progressing. We're, we're, we're progressing along a continuum and we're getting better and better and better and, and, and better. But the, way, the thing is, is that this improvement, this prog- progress can somehow st- often stagnates. And what happens is it stagnates when humanity polarizes, Okay. And so on you got two different ends of a, of a spectrum you got a thesis and you got an antithesis and people and, and people in, in humanity 
stagnate when they pick one side or another. They either pick to be a part of the thesis or the protect uh, or the antithesis, and so you got this fighting back and forth. And so, um, according to Hegel, progress occurs in humanity when you can move beyond thesis and antithesis and come up with what's called a synthesis, uh, a middle ground, a blending of the two, a new way, if you would. And so the emergence, very much in a Hegelian kind of fashion, don't ally themselves with liberals. They don't ally themselves with conservatives. In fact, they say things that kind of... uh, you know that the, they claim show the weaknesses of both sides okay and so they are coming up with this third way this synthesis between conservatism and liberalism that's what they claim and tony jones does a good job of explaining this in his book the new christians um but the problem is is that um this synthesis that they've come up with um still hangs on to uh some of the biblical um problems uh, that the modern liberals uh, have had all along, and they're coming to this—you know—the emergent guys are coming to the same conclusions as the uh, liberals. And uh, today on Tony Jones's uh, blog, and he blogs over at BeliefNet, that uh, great smorgasbord of spirituality, um, where you can, you know, celebrate whatever your religious diversity is. And if you're not sure what you are, you can actually uh, take a test. They have some kind of a wizard that'll tell you. Uh, you know, what what religion would best suit you based upon you filling out these questions. And I think I came, I remember right, I, a hedonistic pagan was what it recommended for me. But um, Tony Jones on his um, blog is announcing the uh, a new blog, uh, website called Queer Mergent. <sighs> yeah, Queer Mergent. And uh, apparently it's focused on gay, lesbian, transgender issues. And uh, and Tony Jones, we even covered this a few weeks ago, um, actually more like a month ago, uh, came out and basically said that uh, he believes that there's no problem, that Christians should get behind gay marriage and and, uh, and stuff like that. And so I thought that's kind of interesting that even though he claims that he's not a liberal, and Tony Jones rightfully points out some of the problems with the uh, the modern modernist liberal movement because he's postmodern. Yet he's coming up with the same conclusions and defending the same things and carrying the same water for that the that the liberals have been picking up. And how is this possible? Well, um, I thought what we would do just for the fun of it is I got a little bit more of that Walter Martin versus John Shelby Spong on uh, on the. Uh, uh, oh, whose show was this? I can't. <laughs> anyway, John Ankerberg. It's on John Ankerberg's show. as way back from the 80s. And I, I want you to listen to this because I think it's interesting that here we've got uh, Tony Jones on his blog promoting the queer emergent site, uh, non-repentant homosexual emergence. And uh, and uh, listen to what John Shelby Spong has to say in defense of uh, homosexuality. So without any further ado, here's a little bit of audio from uh, Walter Martin and John Shelby Spong on the Jan- John Ankerberg show regarding this topic welcome we're here in dallas texas with all these good looking people here and i'll tell you i'm impressed uh lots and lots of good people and new friends that we've met here tonight my guests are episcopal bishop john spong who is representing the new morality calling for sexual ethics which fall outside what is believed to be the traditional moral norm and then dr walter martin who's representing historic orthodox christianity and traditional christian ethics we want to get down to our topic concerning homosexuality and uh, premarital sex. 
But I think, uh, fellows, it would be very helpful uh, for our audience if you would define the words we're going to use, first of all, such as morality and immorality. So we all know what we're talking about. When Christians speak of morality, historically, they have referred to biblically defined morality. When Christians have referred to immorality, they have referred to biblically defined immorality. Now, I'm going to give you a little thesis here, and I'd like you to tell me if you agree or disagree. Uh, I would like you to tell me if the biblically defined morality condemns fornication, adultery, and homosexuality as sinful, and if these negative prohibitions of sexual practices in Scripture make sense only in light of the positive teachings in Genesis 1 and 2 that the only sexual activity blessed and ordained by God is the sexual union between husband and wife in the holy bonds of matrimony. Now, that's the thesis, and uh, that's what most Christians understand. And I'd like to tell me, if we use the words morality and immorality, are we talking about that or something else? Bishop Spong, why don't you start us? All right, we're going to stop right there for a second. I want to point something out. Okay, what John Ankerberg did is basically... In question format, lay out, you know, does the Bible say this? The, the the only way you can correctly do this is to say, okay, well, let's look at what the Bible says in clear, black and white, basic grammar kind of way. Does the Bible affirm homosexuality or does it condemn it? Does it affirm adultery or does it condemn it? Does it affirm fornication or does it condemn it? And it's it's real simple. Yes or no based upon what the, there's a term that they use and I understand the Latin on this is sensus naturalis the natural sense of the reading of something you know for instance if I were to send you an email and you want to know what I meant just what's the natural sense of what I'm writing you know you know if I said that uh, you know I plan on uh, going to Alaska on a cruise you know in, you know along the inland passage and I'll be visiting Sitka Skagway and Juneau um, you can conclude from that email that I will be on a cruise line and that that cruise line will be stopping in Sitka, Skagway, and Juneau, and that I will not be on my way to Japan, Hong Kong, or Sydney. Okay, just, just you understand what I'm saying here? It, this is not hard. In fact, um, you know, Bill Clinton, that great biblical scholar, says all depends on what is, is. Is is pretty simple. You know, <laughs> it's real simple to read the Bible. But before we get to is John Shelby Spong's answer, we will first take our first break and so uh if you would uh uh if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far today on fighting for the faith you can email me talk back at fighting for the faith.com talk back at fighting for the faith.com we will be right back Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. What You out there! Want to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no sense, no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way.
All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Uh, we're in the middle of, uh, once again, kind of comparing what the emergent church movement is up to uh, and comparing it to just to modern liberalism. You know, the emergents claim that they're postmodernists and they're somehow different than liberals, but they're carrying the same water as the liberals. You know, because, you know, uh, what is it that uh, Rod Rosenblatt, used, my, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt from the White Horse Inn, he had this saying, it was a difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. And it's a great saying. In fact, tuck that one away, folks. A difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. And so if you got the emergent church movement basically advocating uh, women's ordination, carrying the water for uh, unrepentant homosexuals, and, and, and not proclaiming what the Bible says, that it's an abomination and a sin that people need to repent of and receive Christ's forgiveness for, then uh, if it doesn't matter how they got there. They're defending the same position as the liberals. So a difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. I, in fact, I claim that emergents are nothing but postmodern liberals. So um, anyway, want to remind you all, folks, that uh, Pirate Christian Radio, uh, the uh, station that Fighting for the Faith airs on, I know you're, many of you listen via podcast, uh, if you want to support Fighting for the Faith, if you find this program to be of value, and you are growing in your biblical understanding and your understanding of Christian doctrine and how to defend the Christian faith, then uh, please support what we're doing. And we've got a couple of ways that you can do so. Um, If you would like to uh, make a donation online, uh, give us a gift, if you would, a financial gift of your support, you can do so by going to fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the donate button. You'll you'll see them every episode has a donate button. And if you prefer to write a check, you're like one of those people like me that you need to have that physical copy. You like to see the the, the you want the bank record and everything else. You want a copy. You want something cuz the the electronic world just is a little too convenient. Uh you can uh, send your checks to Pirate Christian Radio Post Office Box 791 SJC California 92693. Or you can uh, purchase our uh, our ebook of the month, which is uh, Christianity and Liberalism. Great resource. If you have not read this book, it could not be a more important book for you to read because these emergent guys, you know, the shack, you know, the book, the shack, heavily influenced by emergent type of thinking. And the emergents just love that book. Folks, you got to, you need to be able to defend the Christian faith against postmodern liberalism as well as modern liberalism. And uh, the, one of the best, best books written on the subject is J. Gretchen Machen's Christianity and liberalism. You can purchase that at piratechristianradio.com. Click on the uh, on the link there. But keep in mind, we are listener supported, and if you are finding this of a value to you, then we need your support. So back to uh, <clears throat> Bishop John Shelby Spong. Okay, John Ankerberg just basically asked the question: Does the, is, does the Bible condemn adultery as sin, homosexuality as sin, and fornication as sin? The answer is yeah, duh, yes, it does. Well, let's uh, let's hear John Shelby Spong's answer to this question. I'd be glad to, to at least try to to talk about biblical morality is a far more complex subject than I think you've just introduced. Really, Ten Commandments; um, those are pretty straightforward, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Do you think? I mean, it, it, pretty black and pretty simple, right? Short sentence, thou shalt not. Uh, homosexuality, uh, or you know, if a man lies with a man as he lies with a woman, that's an abomination. That's pretty straightforward, okay? 
So uh, apparently not so easy, according to John Shelby Spong. And watch this. I think in logic we call this a red herring. He's going to bring in something that has absolutely nothing to do with the subject. Okay? You know, so... (laughs) You know, it's called a red herring because it's designed to distract you. It's designed to get your attention off of the subject and onto something else. Okay, this is uh, philosophically and logically, it's a, it's a fallacy, but it's it's a sleight of hand trick. Okay, if I can get you, if I can direct your eyes in one direction, I can do something. You know, with one hand, I can do something with my other hand in the in the other direction, so you can't see. So here comes the misdirection. Here, here we go. For example, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The institution of slavery is affirmed. I do not believe that slavery is moral. And yet Paul suggests that slavery is an institution that simply needs to be, uh, how shall we say, tightened a bit. Uh, The slaves should be obedient to their masters. Masters should be kind to their slaves. Okay, so the reason you don't want to go with biblically traditional, biblical traditional morality is because you see uh, such concepts as slavery Uh, taking you away from a commitment of reading the other commandments literally. Is that correct? What I'd like to say is that I don't... The answer to that question is yes, but let's continue. ...to be simplistic about biblical morality. And those that do are simplistic? I would, yes. I would say that the, Mm -hmm. the morality of the Bible is that we shall act toward one another in such a way as to affirm the reality that every human being is created in God's image. What verse is that? Well, I would say that's not in the... <laughs> that was a brilliant question. <laughs> what verse was that? <laughs> you had to play his answer again. Yeah, you yeah, the, play his answer Oh, again. man. Ankerberg, beautifully done. Touche. I mean, that... And see, folks, that's the thing that you need to ask. Okay, when somebody says that uh, you know they're affirming something or they're saying something that's that is not found in the Bible, you just answer ask them the question, "What verse is that from?" Okay, beautifully, beautifully done. <sighs> verse, but I'll find that. So in it's the, not biblical okay. morality. Well, let's wait a minute, John. Let's don't don't be cute. Okay. Oh, you want me to rewind it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Here uh, we go. Because I want to hear his answer again. Okay. Let's uh, for John's sake, not yes. John Shelby Spong, but John's sake. We'll rewind the tape. We'll do a we'll do a replay. Yeah, because it's just beautifully done. It, it, well, we do that when we watch football and baseball. If it's a good play, we replay it. Okay, here. Want to be simplistic about biblical morality. And those that do are simplistic. I would yes, I would say that the mm-hmm. the morality of the Bible is that we shall act toward one another in such a way as to affirm the reality that every human being is created in God's image. What verse is that? Well, I would say that's not in the verse, but I'll find that so in the... So it's not biblical okay. morality. Well, let's wait a minute, John. Let's don't, don't be cute. Uh, I didn't want to be cute. <laughs> let's not be cute. That's not being cute. That's asking the right question. And see, that's the idea, folks, is that we don't make a doctrine out of something that isn't clearly taught in the Bible. Why? Because we believe that the Bible is... God's revelation of himself, his character and what he and what it is that you know what he thinks and believes and wants us to do, that's a revelation of God. And so, you know, the authority of the scripture rests on Jesus Christ. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was the word of God and he miraculously promised that the authors uh, the disciples that uh, that what they would write, he would he, the Holy Spirit would recall the things that he taught and and so the disciples, the apostles recorded what Jesus taught what he did what he said what he what the miracles that he performed and so it's 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 that's uh god's word as well so 
If somebody says God wants you to eat toasted cheese sandwiches, your response is, where does it say that in the Bible? Okay, it has to be there in clear, uncertain, unvague terms. And so what Shelby Spong here is doing is he's taking the clear words of God and deconstructing them and finding a way to subvert them. Of course, whether or not the Bible talks about slavery or has a view on slavery, okay, which, by the way, this is important, is uh, the slavery of, uh, of the race-based slavery of American history is a different institution than slavery altogether. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm in favor of slavery. I think it's terrible. But uh, Christianity didn't come to, 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 uh, to abolish slavery per se, but, but slavery was abolished by Christians. You know, and it took thousands of years, right? Okay. But, uh, you know, it, it's to set us free from the bondage of sin. So there are Christians who are slaves and there are Christians who are slave owners throughout history. Okay. And God is the one who uh, is to work in their life regarding that. But we continue. I really so, wanted to know where you were coming okay, from. Let me, let me say that when you read the first creation story, you find that God looked out upon all that God had made and behold, it was very good. And that's part of your JEPD theory. Yeah, see, here's the deal. Okay, why is it that these guys, you know, we were created in the image of God. And, everybody, and see, God said everything was good. And they skip over Genesis 3. We fell. Okay? Sin entered the equation. Okay? It's, it, we're not in the garden and humanity is not sinless. Well, that's correct. You're, I'm sure, must have heard that archaeology has completely disproved the JEPD theory. And, I disagree uh, with that totally. Are you familiar with uh, Meredith Klein's uh, book, The Treaty of the Great King? I'm, I'm not familiar with that book. Are you I, acquainted you know, with George Mendenhall's book? I am acquainted with a significant number of biblical scholars that will simply deny those people's assertions. Yeah, There's well, a different point of view. Well, what do you do with uh, the fact that uh, Meredith Klein and Kitchen and, uh, and uh, others have uh, shown that you cannot have uh, these books in the time period that you have said, the first millennium, because they fit exactly what has been found concerning the Hittite suzerainty treaties of the 1400s, which is exactly when Moses was writing, that Deuteronomy, Kitchen says, is an exact mirror of that. And this whole idea of the two creation accounts uh, would be absolutely absurd because it's not applied to any other culture in the Middle East which has the exact same thing. If the critics are going to be fair and do this to the Bible, they ought to do it to the other uh, cultures, and they don't do it, and there they have the exact same thing. I don't think there's two creations. Now, wh what is what is uh, Ankerberg doing here? He's bringing evidence to bear that basically says the Bible can be trusted. Okay, He's bringing in archaeological evidence to support and buttress the, the, the Bible. Because what is Spong doing, even though he's wearing a clerical collar, he's completely undermining and subverting the authority of Scripture. And have we got a straight answer from him yet on, on adultery, homosexuality, or fornication? No. No, apparently not. Accounts. I think it's exactly the way Moses intended. The first one is to be the creation account. The second one does exactly what all the other styles of writing in the Middle East at that same time, the 1400s, uh, shows us. It follows up. He, in, he announces the topic, and then he introduces those pertinent points that he wants to. But, John, the two creation stories do not agree with each other. And when one reads them in Hebrew, one sees the difference in language that you... Oh, hogwash. Uh, if, folks, if you, you don't know if, what the argument here is, 
what Spong's basically trying to do is he's saying trying to say there's two different creation stories in the book of Genesis. Not so. One is a summary and one is detail. Have you ever given the long short the long form of a of a story and, and to somebody else given the short synopsis form of it? You know, you ever you know, one of the things what are they, in the five paragraphs uh essay, they teach you to you know, say what you're gonna say, say it and then say what you said. It follows the same pattern here. You could see if you were reading in English. If you read Chaucer and Shakespeare and Hemingway, you could recognize that. Let me uh, read to you from uh, Gleason Archer from Harvard University, who wrote uh, the book Old Testament Survey, who is also a man that corrects the lexicon, a Semitic scholar here in America. He said, Moses in Genesis 1 used the name of God that fits perfectly with the content of that chapter. Since he was describing creation in chapter 1, 31 times he used the name Elohim a name that declares God is the ruler of all nature and the sovereign Lord of the universe. Starting in chapter 2, 4, Moses joins the name Elohim with the name Yahweh. He does this 11 times in chapter 2 to declare that the all-powerful creator of the universe is willing to enter into a personal covenant relationship with man. There is no conflict for Moses to use the name Elohim 31 times in Genesis 1 to appropriately describe God as the almighty creator. And then in Genesis 2 and 3, to join the Creator's name, Elohim, with Yahweh to show God is personal and faithful. And then here's the important part, is that uh, it doesn't show multiple authors. It shows that, uh, that you have uh, the archaeological evidence of that time period, all the ancient civilizations of the Near East, all of them. Every one of them, not one, has ever omitted a description of the formation of the sun, moon, stars, and seas. All of these items are mentioned in the creation accounts of, of all the civilizations. This is according to Gleason Archer. And that's what you have in chapter 1. And in every one of those other civilizations, they follow up and do the same thing. What I wanted to get to was the fact that uh, concerning the Old Testament, it's not simplistic to assume that Moses wrote... The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. I think it is very simple. All right, then the fact is you're out of touch in my estimation. Uh, Jesus believed that, and he taught it. Jesus said that Moses is the author of the Torah, and uh, there is no greater authority than Jesus Christ. I like to help uh, Angerberg out here, but he's doing a fine job. So already on the subject of whether or not homosexuality is a sin, what what is Angerberg having to do? He's having to pull out apologetics defending the Bible uh, with somebody who's supposed to be a Christian clergyman who is denying all of this stuff. ...with the archaeological evidence that I, has been found concerning the suzerainty treaties. No. That's the only time period it shows up, and it does not show up in the 6th century. I would, I would say that you're out of touch with contemporary Hebrew scholarship. Which archaeologist uh, would you cite? Wait, or, wait, wait a second. Ahead, We're getting doctor. way off our course here. I think it's very important, Bishop, that we return to the supreme authority on this subject. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He said Moses wrote the first five books. Jesus quoted Moses. He said Moses wrote of me and he cites Torah. The Lord Jesus Christ is our supreme authority. It's the one, the person you said you would obey. Then throw your archaeological jargon into the ash can and obey Jesus Christ. <laughs> It's like watching theological boxing. It's beautiful. It's, this uh, brings a tear to my eye. It was so beautifully done. Uh, that, that was a left hook to the face. Uh.
All that I know from what you said is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John thought Jesus said that. They don't know that Jesus said that. <laughs> they thought he said it, but they don't know that he said They're the eyewitnesses. <sighs> and funny enough, folks, we're on the subject of homosexuality. And this guy will not bend the knee to Scripture. Will not bend it. But in terms of incarnation, my brothers and sisters, I see no... Uh, uh, you ain't my brother, uh, John Shelby Spong. Uh, not in Christ, that's for sure. Maybe in Adam, in sin, yeah, but not in Christ. ...reason to think that Jesus Christ in his incarnate form in the first century had all wisdom. Yes. Uh, did he understand Einstein's theory of relativity? No, those issues had not even been raised. The question is, Jesus, did, he, did he have to to give a report of what he saw? Well, I think that, you know, the Christian affirmation about Jesus is not just that he's God. It's also that he is incarnate in a completely, totally human form. Yes, but if he gives evidence in which you can tell, in other words, for example, if he comes forth from the dead, then he can give the interpretation, the precise interpretation on that. And once he makes statements, even though we might not know all that he means, we ought to go with the statements because he's the chief. I think also we should take into consideration the fact that when Jesus lived among us as a man, he might not have known that 12 times 12 was 144. But he never taught it was 145. And the reason he didn't is because he had something going from you and I don't have. All the professors don't have. All the rest of the scholars don't have. Jesus had this going for him. He said, the words that I speak unto you, my Father gave to me. I speak in accordance with his command. Once again, you're quoting the fourth gospel. I would yeah, like to... I think to... it's a good gospel. It's, I really like that. It's my favorite gospel. gospel. Yeah. But I do think you need to be aware that when you're dealing with Scripture literally, you may well miss the point. The fourth gospel. Uh, you hear that, folks? And who is it that has picked up these arguments? It's the emergent church. We can't even get a straight answer on the simple question, is homosexuality a sin? And we've got Tony Jones and the gang deconstructing the scriptures and coming to the same conclusions. A difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Let's listen to a little bit more of this. It's just amazing that, that, that you have Walter Martin and John Ankerberg having to convince or trying to convince John Shelby Spong to bend the knee to scripture and he's sitting there going, oh, that's simplistic and you're missing the point. Is a magnificent portrait painted of the experience of Jesus Christ. That's the theory. There is something very different from a portrait being painted and a photograph being taken. This is an interpretive book. Do I think that Jesus... I, I've heard, I have heard Brian McLaren make similar arguments. We need to think of the poetic narrative. You know, the the poetry of, of it is being lost, and, and the art, the you know, it, it's not a science book. It, it it's it's a painting. The emergents make this exact same argument. Jesus went around Nazareth saying, "I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life." I think if a human being had gone around saying those things, they would have put him in a mental institution. They tried to kill him. But let me just say that in Mark's gospel, he, kept, he keeps saying to everybody, don't tell who I am. 
You know, if you understand it, the only people... He didn't say that to everybody. He said that to certain people. Let's not make a broad statement there. At the beginning of his ministry also, progressively when the Jews rejected him, he even began to minister to the Gentiles, as you recall. See, even the disciples did not understand Jesus until Easter. Yes, they but all they, forsook him. But the question is, did they ever understand him? we got to take a break here, and we're going to come <laughs> back here and uh, talk about this a little bit more. Please stick with us. There's that 80s music. All right, we're back, and we're talking about morality, and we're talking about... Notice, the, the topic is morality, sexual ethics and morality, and uh, what are we doing here? We're defending the Bible. And by the way, folks, if you don't understand what apologetics is all about, apologetics is really about removing obstacles so that you can preach the gospel. That's really what it's about. And it means understanding somebody's, you know, it, providing evidence to overcome real objections you know skeptical and and you know and scholarly objections i say that kind of loosely so that you can preach the gospel and, and the topic here is uh, sexual ethics and we can't even get we can't we don't even they're trying to get common ground at this point uh and be, why because john shelby spong refuses to cede common ground on the word of god because he uh won't take it at face value because that's too simplistic let me continue Specifically, the church's stand, what Christians have held, the Bible teaches, what Christ would want us to live out in our lives uh, concerning uh, ethics, premarital sex, homosexuality, and other things. And uh, Dr. Martin, I never did get back to you in that last uh, sequence there. What do you mean by morality? I would affirm the thesis that what uh, has been revealed to us not something that evolved, which the bishop believes, as a result of the religion of the Israelites, but what God himself did reveal. Uh, I believe this is the criterion, and I think also in the New Testament, what Christ said and what the apostles taught is the standard for morality. All right, let's get down to uh, homosexuality. I want to get to this topic here, because, um, Bishop Spong, you have said that uh, the church quote, should bless and affirm publicly the union forged in love by two persons of the same gender. You said the negativity toward blessing gay and lesbian unions will die and be one more embarrassing relic in the museum of cultural and ecclesiastical prejudices. I look forward to that. <laughs> That's from his book Living in Sin, by the way, that he's quoting here. Hey, I hope I contribute to its early arrival. What we need to do is take a look at... Uh, uh, the scriptures, and the reason I'm going to do this is because uh, Bishop Spong in your book and Dr. Martin in your book, you have both said people need to go to the scripture, although you've come out with different points of view. And uh, Bishop Spong, you have said that if people that are Christians would go to these texts that are traditionally used to show that it is wrong, that they will get a different idea. And so I would like to do that. And uh, uh, Dr. Martin, why don't you summarize uh, for us, and then Bishop Spong, you can... Uh, uh, speak to uh, the thought. We'll have some dialogue. Let's start with... Uh... All right, we're going to take a break here, and we'll come back. We'll listen to the balance of this, and then in, this, in the next hour, we're going to uh, hear uh, Gene Robinson's prayer yesterday that he gave and uh, and try to figure out which God he was invoking at his uh, invoca invocation at one of the early inaugural events for uh, President Barack Obama. And uh, we will also uh, spend a little time uh, reading uh, from Barack Obama's interview with this, uh, with a newspaper uh, back in 2004 about his religious beliefs. So uh, stay tuned. There's some really good, important stuff that we're going to be handling in the balance of the program today. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything that you've heard so far, you can do so at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. 
talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. Alright, we're back. And you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and we are in the middle of listening to... uh fantastic debate done many, many years ago, decades ago now, on the Jan Ankerberg show, between uh, Walter Martin, you might as well throw John Ankerberg in there, it's obvious that he's <laughs> no friend of uh, John Shelby Spong's, and uh, the, what the topic we're talking about is homosexuality. Why am I bringing this up? Well, because uh, the emergent church, which I consider to be just a postmodern version of liberalism, whereas John Shelby Spong is an artifact, he's a, he's a modernist liberal, uh, the emergent church is uh, supporting homosexuality. They claim that they're not liberal, and they claim they're not conservative, and they're somehow uh, synthesis or a middle ground between the two extremes, and yet they're coming to the same conclusions as uh, modern liberals. And, uh, and, you know, folks, if you're a Christian... The Bible is authoritative. Christ says it's the word of God, and he proved it by raising himself from the dead. You have a difference of opinion uh, than Jesus does regarding the scriptures. Uh, you're wrong. 
And I mean that in the real, in most politically incorrect sense you can possibly think of. You, you, you be believing a lie is what it comes down to. And uh, here we got John Shelby Spong in his book Living in Sin basically saying that uh, Christians should bless homosexual unions. And you know what? The emergent church guys, Tony Jones, is saying the same thing. They got there by a different route, but pretty much the same way. Difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Let's continue. Let's see if these guys actually talk about this the subject. We got Walter Martin talking here. Number one in the Bible there concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. Dr. Martin? Well, the biblical position on Sodom and Gomorrah and the position in context as far as the Jews were concerned was that what took place was the judgment of God upon a very wicked city. Not just wicked in terms of sexual immorality, but also in the fact that it cared nothing for the poor, that it abused the blessings which had been given to it. But the basic idea of Sodom's judgment, and that's why the term itself in the uh, Jewish dictionaries, the Jewish commentaries, the rabbinical commentaries, the Targums, all of this material always sets it in the context of the Sodomites. So when you talk about homosexuality, you are talking about sodomites, identifying them as actually holding positions which were abnormal and contrary to nature, as the Jews understood it, as they understood God to have revealed it, and this is carried through also into the New Testament. In fact, it specifically says that what they were doing was wicked and vile and detestable, and therefore it is involving very specifically sexual transgression at this particular point. Also, when the uh, mob came outside of Lot's house, uh, they were specific in saying, bring them out to us, the two angels, that we may have sexual relations with them. There's no challenge about the fact that it was sexual relations. Now, this wasn't gang rape. This wasn't male prostitution. This was a projection of the nature of Sodom, which was not interested in young girls or in normal sex primarily, but also, but primarily in, I should say, uh, homosexual activities. Bishop Spong, you've uh, taken some uh, exception to uh, the traditional stance. Would you tell us what that is? Yes. First of all, I'd like to say that when you talk about homosexuality, it is probably the most controversial subject, the ones about which we have the deepest prejudice, the one that it is the hardest to hear. So I would urge this audience, both the television audience and the present audience, to at least be sensitive to the fact that we're describing human beings. I'd agree. Who are homosexual persons. And as I say, it's very difficult to talk about this. Now, I think we ought to go one step further and say that as far as Christianity is held through history is that whether a person sins homosexually or heterosexually or steals or robs, they are still made in the image of God. That's and correct. they are full human beings. We might believe they're fallen, they're sinful, and Christ can change them. But yes. uh, I agree with but you. I, I Roll think on. it's important that we at least... I would go farther. Christ died for their sins, too. Okay? That's the message of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. And we Christians need to hear that. And that's what we need to be proclaiming to heterosexual sinners, to homosexual sinners, to sinners of all stripes. Set that kind of sensitivity when Christians begin to talk about some human beings. Yes. I'm not here to defend the, the present scientific estimates, 
but I'll at least state them. I have no way of documenting them, but the present scientific estimates in this country are that up to 10% of our population is gay or lesbian at all times. Now, if that is true, and I'm not, as I say, here yes. to defend that, but if that is true, we need to keep in mind that that means one out of every 10 people that we meet. It means that homosexual, gay, and lesbian people are our own brothers and sisters, our own children, our own aunts and uncles, that these are not evil people out somewhere, but they are people that all of us know and love, whether we know that they're gay or lesbian people or not. So well, hold on a second. <clears throat> 100% of everybody I know is a sinner. 100% of everybody I've ever met, talked with, spent time with, had lunch with, everybody I know is a sinner. 100% of them. 100% of the people I know are evil by nature. Sinners. Rebellious against God. You need to put the gun down, you know, <laughs> and stop firing it at God, Okay. So when you hear an argument like this, you got to keep in mind the bigger issue. The bigger issue is that it's not that we're somehow singling out homosexuals. We're not singling them out. We are holding them up to the same standard that we hold ourselves to or that we're being held to. That's God's word. And God's word declares us all to be sinners. And he declares specifically the, the sins that we are committing individually. Whether it be lying, cheating, stealing, not loving God with all your heart, idolatry, adultery, fornication, gossip. Yeah, that's a nasty one. Um, murder. You see what I'm saying? We're all sinners. With, with that background, it is, it is important, I think, that we be very, very sensitive. Okay, how do you reckon now, that in with uh, your thinking on Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, let's, let's go to Sodom and Gomorrah. First of all, I'd say if all of the men of the village of Sodom are outside demanding that two males be brought out so that they might be sexually abused, that that does constitute gang rape. I mean, all the men of the city? Secondly, among those all the men of the city are the two young men who are engaged to be married to Lot's two daughters. I think that that's rather interesting, that they would be wanting to go in both directions. But the final and most important thing about the Sodom and Gomorrah story, are there are a number of really interesting nuances about it. See, the two angels come down to Sodom because God wants to know whether or not Sodom is evil. I think that's a very interesting concept of God. He doesn't seem to know, and so he has to send messengers literally down on the earth. Then the uh, then they, Lot gives them the hospitality of his home. In the ancient world, you need to understand that hospitality meant the difference between life and death. Also, you need to understand that the way people could violate strangers, show their power over strangers, humiliate strangers. The favorite way of doing that in the ancient world was to force the male strangers, because women didn't wander from village to village in that era, force the male strangers to take the role of women in the sex act. That is, by, by doing homosexual activities on these men, they were in fact insulting women. But the, the, the most important thing to me is Lot's behavior. He was spared. He was therefore accounted among the righteous. And what did Lot do? Lot went to his door and he said to this mob from the village of Sodom, he said, you're, you're being evil. And I agree, they were being evil. And he said, I have given these two angels, these two messengers, visitors, the hospitality and protection of my home. I beg you not to do this. But he then goes on to say, 
You know where the punchline's coming with this one. Apparently, the uh, the sin of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was inhospitality. I will placate you in your anger because I have two virgin daughters, and I will send them out to you, and you can do with them what you will. My brothers and sisters, I have three daughters. That is not righteous behavior. I agree. I cannot understand why that story is quoted as a way to condemn anything. I can condemn a lot of things from that story. But the Bible is... Uh... We don't need the narratives to do that. We have clear propositional truths giving, given in the law, given in the epistles. When it talks about uh, Judas went out and hanged himself, and it gives that description, it's not teaching we ought to all go and do the same. That's correct. And I'm not sure that because it describes an accurate uh, statement that Lot made, that therefore it is teaching that uh, we ought to all gang rape women instead of men. Yes, but I want you to know that Lot was accounted righteous. For that what behavior is part of Lot. In what context, then, Peter, do you find? If Lot's accounted righteous, is it because he himself is righteous or because he was declared righteous because of his faith and trust in Christ? The one coming. Important, because uh, Shelby Smong does not believe in the substitutionary atonement, so he, everyone's righteous based on their own righteousness, not somebody else's. And Peter. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why your reference to Peter. It, well, where is that reference found, that he's a righteous man? Well, it's in the whole story of Genesis. Yes, and it's the also whole, in the, the New Testament. The whole purpose of those visitors to go down there was to see whether or not there were ten righteous people who could be spared, and the only ones that were judged righteous and spared were Lot, his wife, his two daughters. Yes, do you, do you see any definition of righteous that would fit that context that you're seeing? I do not regard Lot's behavior in that instance as righteous behavior. No, and I don't either, but there are some things about Lot that are righteous that he would be thought to be righteous and could be called that. For example, David is called a man after God's own heart, right? Yes. Now, he murders, commits adultery, and he's still called a man after God's own heart. Why? Because the overall tenor of his life was that. And that's... No, because he trusted in Christ. Ankerberg, you're off here. That's the way I think that he's referred to in Scripture. Well, not that everything that Lot does is perfect, and not, absolutely not, the fact that when he's offering his daughters... Is this something that we ought to emulate and that he is righteous because he does it? But, John, I do not believe that you call off a gang of males who want to sexually abuse two males with I the offering of your daughters I to that gang of males. I, I think you ought to deal with the negativity of that whole behavior. Notice he's trying ever so hard here to get off the subject. Subterfuge is the word that comes to mind. Subterfuge. In other words, uh, that's kind of the tenor, tenure of the <clears throat> tenor of the whole discussion here. Clear passages, blow, obfuscate and blow smoke screen and make it so you don't deal with the issue. Never deals with it straight up. Never, never deals with the issue straight up. Anyway, the, I've put a link up. I'll put a link up to you know these uh, YouTube videos if you'd like to watch the rest of them because it is a very interesting debate, and I think there's quite a few parts of it. I think there's like 15 parts to this debate overall. Obviously, it was done over several shows. So uh, that'll be up at fightingforthefaith.com and talking about the issue of homosexuality and now idolatry. Um, we uh, Last week, we played uh, Bishop Gene Robinson promising that he was going to be invoking uh, some deity called the... Uh, 
the God of our many understandings. And uh, he made good on his promise. Uh, we've got uh, audio. It's not the best quality, but I think you'll uh, you'll get the, the gist of it. Uh, Bishop, uh, unrepentantly homosexual Episcopal Bishop Gene Robinson, who, by the way, divorced his wife so that he could uh, be with his gay partner. And uh, here's his prayer from yesterday at the uh, Lincoln Memorial. And uh, let's let's uh, hear which God he's invoking here. O oh God of our many understandings, we pray that you will. O oh God of our many understandings, uh, folks, can you point me to a Bible verse that uh, discusses this God anywhere? Anywhere? Well, let's let's. Yeah, let's see if this God, uh, what, what, what he's going to ask or, you know, at, you know, he's invoking. So he's invoking this deity for help, right? Um, so let's find out what he wants this deity to do for us. Here we go. Bless us with tears. Tears for a world in which over a billion people exist on less than a dollar a day. Where young women in many lands are beaten and raped for wanting an education. And thousands die daily from malnutrition, malaria, and AIDS. Bless this nation with anger. Anger at discrimination at home and abroad. Against refugees and immigrants, women, people of color, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people. Bless us with discomfort at the easy, simplistic answers we've preferred to hear from our politicians instead of the truth about ourselves and our world, which we need to face if we are going to rise to the challenges of the future. Bless us with patience and the knowledge that none of what ails us will be fixed anytime soon, and the understanding that our new president is a human being, not a messiah. Bless us with humility, open to understanding that our own needs as a nation must always be balanced with those of the world. Bless us with freedom from mere tolerance, replacing it with a genuine respect and warm embrace of our differences. And bless us with compassion and generosity, remembering that every religion's God judges us by the way we care for the most vulnerable. Every religion's God judges us? I did not know that Allah even existed. Uh, there's no proof that he does. I did not know that Buddha is um, has any kind of reality whatsoever in reality. And God, we give you thanks for your child Barak as he assumes the office of President of the United States. Give him wisdom beyond his years. Inspire him with President Lincoln's reconciling leadership style, President Kennedy's ability to enlist our best efforts, and Dr. King's dream of a nation for all people. Give him a quiet heart for our ship of state needs a steady, calm captain. Give him stirring words. We will need to be inspired and motivated
dedicated to make the personal and common sacrifices necessary to facing the challenges ahead. Make him colorblind, reminding him of his own words that under his leadership, there will be neither red nor blue states, but the United States. Help him remember his own oppression as a minority, drawing on that experience of discrimination that he might seek to change the lives of those who are still its victims. Give him strength to find family time and privacy and help him remember that even though he is president, a father only gets one shot at his daughter's childhoods. And please God, keep him safe. We know we ask too much of our presidents and we are asking far too much of this one. We implore you, O oh good and great God, to keep him safe. Okay, well, apparently the God of our many understandings is a good and great God. Not familiar with this deity. I mean, a nice social gospel prayer. Um, Hold him in the palm of your hand. That he apparently the God of our many understandings has a big palm. Okay. He might do the work we have called him to do. That he might find joy in this impossible calling. And that in the end... He might lead us as a nation to a place of integrity, prosperity, and peace. Amen. Maybe we need to have a showdown between this God and the real God. You know, uh, uh, Ma Elijah Mount Carmel style. You know, I mean, is this God, does this God even have ears? Can he hear? I don't know anything about this God. You know, I... Ay, ay, ay. So that was his prayer to the God of our many understandings. And um, again, I don't know anything about this God. I've never I've never heard of this God. What do we, what do we make of this? Well, you know, since liberals like talking about narrative, you know, I thought we would do a little narrative today. Um, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Daniel chapter three. Little narrative here. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, it starts with uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And if you're not familiar with the history here, uh, Israel has been uh, taken into captivity, into Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar came and basically conquered Israel and led the Jews' captives back to Babylon. Okay? And Nebuchadnezzar is an idolater. He worships other deities. And, um, and uh, the Jews... You know, we consider these, in a way, kind of proto-Christians. They trust in Yahweh, okay, and the promise of the coming Messiah. And so uh, they believe the scriptures as it pertains to the fact that there is only one God and you should worship and serve him only and that you can't worship any other deity, okay? Just a little historical fact here. So let, let's read this narrative and let's see if um, if there's any way to reconcile what's going on here. I mean, maybe, maybe if the story were uh, about the God of our many understandings, 
then we would have had a different result here. Let's see. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Uh, That's okay. So uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's a head of state, just like Barack Obama. He's a head of state, right? And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar set up this idol. Okay, it was beautiful, made out of gold, okay? Probably a very impressive, very large gold idol. And uh and they everyone was commanded to worship this idol, okay? And uh whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Apparently this was not a god of multiple understandings. You know, this was a god that ex- you know was exclusive, right? Therefore, as soon as all of the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, the Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, may you live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, wait a second here. Um, I thought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are good guys, right? At least the way this narrative is going. I mean, you got King Nebuchadnezzar. He's not exactly a good guy because he brought Israel into captivity. But, I mean, if... um, if Bishop Gene Robinson's God of our many understandings is the right God to follow, right? Then the good guys at this point, you would think they would go, oh, we have no problem whatsoever worshiping that God because that's the God of your understandings and we have the God of our understandings. But who are we to, you know, to judge that way, right? But no, these guys are, they refuse to bow down to this idol, right? This is all narrative, by the way. Okay, so anyway, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 13, uh, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, 
to fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Okay. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, now, if Gene Robinson's God of Many Understandings was the correct way of understanding God, they would have probably said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you just misheard. Those guys were maliciously speaking against us. We have no problem bowing down and worshiping your God, too. You know, because who are we to speak with certainty like we have the truth? Right? Because God is bigger than all of our understandings, right? I mean, and we don't want to be arrogant and selfish and act like we know with any certainty about how God is. <clears throat> that's not what they said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. How arrogant of them. Can you believe this? These guys are arrogantly refusing to bow down and recognize another deity. Huh. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression on his face was changed. Apparently, he was insulted. And everybody knows that you're not allowed to insult somebody, right? And so, I mean, now now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have caused him angst and, and insulted and hurt his feelings. His self-esteem is obviously crushed here to the point where he's lashing out in anger. You know, because everybody knows that King Nebuchadnezzar, although he was a man, was really just a, in a he was just an insecure boy on the inside. Isn't what Carrie Shook said? Anyway, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered that the furnace be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, and their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Apparently, they were not willing to uh, recognize the God of our many understandings. And uh, were willing to go to their deaths rather than bow down and worship this God of a different understanding. So then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste and he declared to the counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Could it be that Jesus came to rescue them? Sure does sound like it, doesn't it? So then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Apparently, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was abandoning the God of his understanding and uh, was recognizing a God of a different understanding. Right? Apparently, um, the golden idol that he had set up was not compatible. The truth claims regarding that idol were not compatible with the one true, the truth regarding the one true God. Right. 
<clears throat> so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the kings and the counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. And the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except for their own. Therefore I make a decree that any people or nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. <laughs> For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Great story, isn't it? And it's true. It's historically true. So, Gene Robinson, uh, praying to the God of our many understandings. I'm not familiar with that God. It, you know, it lacks the uh, the golden veneer of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's deity. But it's just as idolatrous, and I will not bow down to that idol. And I find it very alarming, disturbing, and wrong that a Christian clergyman, <coughs> Christian said in kind of the loosest terms, is invoking an idol, is invoking a false god. We can even say invoking a demon, because this is not the god of the Bible. This is something else. And so uh, I won't bow down to the god of many understandings, because I only understand the one true god as he has revealed himself in the words of the Bible. And I've got Jesus' stamp of approval for the words of the Bible to be the, one, the word of God. Because Jesus Christ claimed to be God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by the way. And he proved his claim by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. I'll go with those credentials. Over Gene Robinson, John Shelby Spong, or any of the emergent guys, any day of the week. Right? Now, that's, see, now, this Gene Robinson prayer is a great segue into what does Barack Obama believe? I said we would talk about this. I found on the internet, thanks to the help of Stephen Archer, um, had to do some digging, that um, there's a uh, columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, she's a religion columnist. Her name is Kathleen Falsani. She goes by the, the, uh, the name God Girl. And back in March of 2004, why is this important? Well, because in March of 2004, Barack Obama was not the president of the United States, okay? He was just a senator, okay? He had just recently been elected to the, the United States Senate. And uh, Kathleen Falsani, God girl from the Chicago Sun-Times, um, she did an interview with him specifically on the issue of God. What does Barack Obama re believe regarding God? And now I have a much better radar fix on what this guy believes. And believe me when I tell you, um, there's some things here that make me go, ooh, ooh, not so good, not so good. All right, so <clears throat> so this was 3.30 uh, p.m. Saturday, March 27th at the Cafe Bachi at uh, 330 South Michigan Avenue in Chicago. God Girl had a decaf, and uh, Barack Obama was alone, and he was on time, and he had a naked juice and a protein shake. 
That's, this is this is the details that are written here. I mean, this is this is good reporting here. <clears throat> so right off the bat, she goes, uh, "What do you believe?" She asked Barack Obama, "What do you believe?" Obama. Okay, this is before he was running for president. Obama says, "I am a Christian." Okay. So he identifies, he self-identifies as a Christian. Now, there's a lot of people who self-identify as a Christian. I just sit there and go, mm-hmm. For instance, Bishop Gene Robinson, he self-identifies as a Christian. Do I consider him to be one? No. John Shelby Spong self-identifies as a Christian. Do I consider him to be a Christian? No, I consider him to be a son of perdition. Okay, different story altogether. Anyway, so we continue. Okay, so Barack Obama in 2004 says, I'm a Christian. So I have a deep faith, so I draw from the Christian faith. On the other hand, I was born in Hawaii, where obviously there are a lot of Eastern influences. I lived in East Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world between the ages of 6 and 10. My father was from Kenya, and although he was probably most accurately labeled as an agnostic, his father was Muslim. And I'd say, probably intellectually, I've drawn from uh, as much from Judaism as from any other faith. Okay, a little eclectic here. Okay. He says, so I'm rooted in the Christian tradition. I believe that there are many paths to the same place. And that is a belief that there is a higher power, a belief that we are all connected as people, that there are values that transcend race or culture that move us forward. And there's an obligation for all of us individually as well as collectively to take responsibility to make those values lived. He's sounding like a theological liberal here at this point. I believe that there are many paths to the same place. Strike one. Okay, and so part of my project in life was probably to spend the first 40 years of my life figuring out what I did believe. I'm 42 now. Apparently he's you know 46 or 47 now. And it's not that I, I had it all completely worked out, but I'm spending a lot of time now trying to apply what I believe and trying to live up to those values. So God Girl asks him, have you always been a Christian? Obama's answer. He says, I was raised more by my mother and my mother was Christian. God girl asks, well, any particular flavor? Obama says, no. My grandparents who were from small towns in Kansas, my grandmother was a Methodist. My grandfather was a Baptist. And this was a time when I think Methodists felt slightly superior to the Baptist. And by the time I was born, they were, I think my grandparents had joined a universalist church. So my mother, who I think had as much influence on my values as anybody, was not someone who wore her religion on her sleeve. We'd go to church for Easter. She wasn't a church lady. And as I said, we moved to Indonesia. She remarried an Indonesian who wasn't particularly you know, Christian. He wasn't a practicing Muslim. I went to a Catholic school in a Muslim country, so I was studying the Bible and catechisms by day, and at night you'd hear the prayer call. So I don't think as a child we were, or I had a structured religious education, but my mother was deeply uh, was a deeply spiritual person and would spend a lot of time talking about values and give me books about the world's religions and talk to me about them. And I, I think her, views, uh, her view always was that underlying these religions were a common set of beliefs about how you treat other people and how you aspire to act, not just for yourself, but also for the greater good. <clears throat> Let me pause for a second here and uh, point out that uh, uh, Obama here is uh, basically talking about a liberal law-based religion. Okay. 
All right, for the greatest. So and so that I think I I, I that <clears throat> and so that I think that was what I carried with me to, uh, through college. I probably didn't get started getting active in church activities until I moved to Chicago. The way I came to Chicago in 1985 was that I was interested in community organizing and I was inspired by the civil rights movement and the idea that ordinary people could do extraordinary things. And there was a group of churches out there on on the south side of Chicago that had come together to form an organization to try to deal with the devastation of steel plants that had closed and didn't have much money but felt if they formed an organization and hired somebody to organize them to work on issues that affected their community – that it would strengthen the church and also strengthen the community. So they hired me for $13,000 a year, the princely sum, and I drove out here and I didn't know anybody and started working with the ministers and the lay people in these churches on issues like creating job training programs or after-school programs for youth or making sure that city services were fairly allocated to undeserved communities. This would uh, this would be in Roseland, West Pullman, Altgeld Gardens in Southside working class and lower income communities. And it was in those places where I think that I had been more of an intellectual view of religion deepened because I'd be spending an enormous amount of time with church ladies, sort of surrogate mothers and fathers and everybody I was working with was 50 or 55 or 60. And here I was, twenty a 23-year-old kid running around. I had become much more familiar with the ongoing tradition of the historic black church and its importance in the community and the power of that culture to give people strength in very difficult circumstances and the power of of that church to give people courage against great odds, and it moved me deeply. So that one of the churches I met or one of the churches that I I became involved in was Trinity United Church of Christ, and the pastor there, Jeremiah Wright, became a good friend. So I joined that church and committed myself to Christ in that church. God Girl asks, did you actually go up for an altar call? Obama, yes, absolutely. It was a dynamite service during a daytime service, and it was a powerful moment because it was powerful for me. Not in only It not only confirmed my faith, it not only gave shape to my faith, but I think it also allowed me to connect the work I had been pursuing with my faith. So God Girl asks, well, how long ago? Obama, 16, 17 years ago, 1987 or 88. So God Girl asks, so you got yourself born again, Obama? His answer is, yeah, although I don't, I retain from my childhood and my experiences growing up a suspicion of dogma. Listen to this. I retain from my childhood and my experiences a growing, uh, growing up a suspicion of dogma. And I'm not somebody who's always comfortable with language that implies I've got a monopoly on the truth or that my faith is automatically transferable to others. I'm a big believer in tolerance. I think that religion at its best comes with a big dose of doubt. I'm suspicious of too much certainty in the pursuit of understanding just because I think people are limited in their understanding. I think that particularly as somebody who's now in the public realm and is a student of what brings people together and what drives them apart, there's an enormous amount of damage done around the world in the name of religion and certainty. Let me pause there for a second and basically say this. Barack Obama is sounding like an emergent. Okay, He's sounding like a post modern emergent he's not sounding like a rock solid fundamental bible believing christian he's sounding like an emergent god girl asks do you still attend trinity obama yep every week 11 o'clock service so at this time he's attending jeremiah Wright. we've all seen the videos of jeremiah Wright. 
And so Obama asked God girl, have you ever been there? It's a good service. I actually wrote a book called dreams from my father. It's a kind of meditation on race. There's a whole chapter on the church in that. And my first visits to Trinity. So God girl asks, do you pray often? Obama says, oh yeah, I guess I do. It's not formal me getting on my knees. I think I have an ongoing conversation with God. I think throughout the day, I'm constantly asking myself questions about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. One of the interesting things about being in public life is there are constantly these pressures being placed on you from different sides. To be effective, you have to be able to listen to a variety of points of view, synthesize viewpoints. You also have to know when to be just a, a strong advocate and, and push back against certain people or views that you think aren't right or don't serve your constituents. And so the biggest challenge, I think, is always maintaining your moral compass. Now, i got to pause here for a second. Barack Obama, in his interview, talks about the importance of maintaining a moral compass. The question I have is, is that are you basing your opinions about morals on yourself, your life experiences, or are you basing them on the objective word of God? And the reason I ask this is because Barack Obama, uh, not only is he pro-abortion, which basically makes you wonder if his moral compass is broken, but he's also authored legislation that is, makes him pro-infanticide. I mean, killing killing young infants who, who survive abortion. Uh, you know, so... Uh, immediately my skeptical part of me goes, okay, where's your moral compass on the abortion issue? Um, so we continue. So he says, and so the biggest challenge I think is always maintaining your moral compass. These are the conversations I'm having internally. I'm measuring my actions against that inner voice. That for me at least is audible. It's active. It tells me where I think I'm on track and where I think I'm off track. Let me read this again. Pay close attention. Barack Obama is saying that his moral compass is based upon measuring his actions against an inner voice, a subjective inner voice rather than the objective word of God. He says, so the biggest challenge I think is always maintaining your moral compass. Those are the conversations I'm having internally. I'm measuring my actions against that inner voice. That for me at least is audible. It is active. It tells me where I think I'm on track and where I think I'm off track. It's interesting, particularly now after this election, this is the Senate election, uh, comes uh, with a lot of celebrity. And I always think of politics as having two sides. There's a vanity aspect of politics, and then there's a substantive part of politics. Now, you need some sizzle with the stake to be effective, but I think it's easy to get swept up in the vanity side of it. The desire to be liked and recognized and important. It's important for me throughout the day to measure and to take stock and to say, now, am I doing this because I think it's advantageous to me politically or because I think it's the right thing to do? Am I doing this to get my name in the papers or am I doing this because it's necessary to accomplish my motives? So then God girl asks Obama, checking for altruism? Obama says, yeah, I mean something like it. Looking for it's interesting. The most important, the, the most powerful political moments for me come when I feel like my actions are aligned with a certain truth. I can feel it. When I'm talking to a group and say something truthful, I can feel a power that comes out of those statements that is different than when I am just being glib or clever. 
folks, listen to this. His moral compass, again, he's basing it on something completely subjective. It's within him. I feel something different. I feel a power. I listen to that inner voice. Uh, Folks, within us, we have a sinful and wicked heart. We cannot trust our hearts. We must rely on the objective word of God to give us a moral bearing on what is right and what is wrong. God's word has to be our compass, not our inner voices, not our feelings or anything like this. So already, based upon Obama's interview with God Girl back in 2004, he's, uh, I mean, this is the same kind of epistemology that you get from a Mormon. How do you know the Book of Mormon is true? Well, because I've had a burning in my bosom. And apparently Barack Obama has burnings in his bosom. So God Girl asks him, what's that power? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it God? Obama, well, I think it's the power of the recognition of God or the recognition of a larger truth that is being shared between me and an audience. That's something you learn watching ministers quite a bit. What they call the Holy Spirit, they want the Holy Spirit to come down before they're preaching, right? Not to try to intellectualize it, but what I see is these are there are moments that happen within a sermon where the minister gets out of his ego and is speaking from a deeper source, and it's powerful. There are also times when you can see the ego getting in the way, where the minister is performing and clearly straining for applause or for an amen, and those are distinct moments. I think those former moments are sacred. So God Girl asks, who is Jesus to you? Which, by the way, is a stupid question. The question is, who is Jesus to me? Anyway, so it says that he laughed nervously. He says, right. He says, Jesus is an historical figure for me. He's also a bridge between God and man in the Christian faith, and one that I think is powerful precisely because he serves as the means of us reaching something higher. Wow, not sure what that meant. Obama continues, he says, and Jesus is also a wonderful teacher. I think it's important for all of us of whatever faith to have teachers in the flesh and also teachers in history. So God girl then asks Obama, is Jesus someone who you feel you have a regular connection with now, a personal connection within your life? Obama says, yeah, yes. I think some of the things that I I talked about earlier are addressed through, are channeled through my Christian faith and a personal relationship with Jesus. God girl asks, have you ever read the Bible? Obama says, absolutely. I read it not as regularly as, I read it not as regularly as I would like. Uh, These days I don't have much time for reading or reflection, period. So she asks, do you try to take some time for whatever meditation or prayer or reading? Obama says, I'll be honest with you. I used to do it all the time in a fairly disciplined way. But during the course of this campaign, I don't, and I probably need to and would like to, but that's where the internal monologue or dialogue, I think, supplants my opportunity to read and reflect in a structured way these days. So Obama said in this interview that his internal monologue or dialogue, he doesn't know which it is, supplants reading and praying and reflecting. It's much more it's much more sort of as I'm going through the day trying to take stock and take a moment here and a moment there to take stock. Why am I here? How does this connect with a larger sense of purpose? 
God Girl then asks, do you have people in your life that you look to for guidance? Obama, well, my pastor is certainly someone who I have an enormous amount of respect for. This is uh, Pastor Jeremiah Wright. I have a number of friends who are ministers. Reverend Meeks is a close friend and a colleague of mine in the state senate. Father Michael Felger is a dear friend and somebody I interact with closely. So God Girl then asked, those two will keep you on your toes. Obama says, and they're good friends because both of them are in the public eye. And there are ways we can all reflect on what's happening to each of us in ways that are useful. I think they can help me, but they can appreciate certain specific challenges that I go through as a public figure. So then God Girl asks Jack Ryan, Obama's Republican opponent from the U.S. uh, Senate race, said, talking about your faith is fraught with peril for a public figure. Obama says, which is why you generally will not see me spending a lot of time talking about it on the stump. Alongside of my own deep personal faith, I am a follower as well of our civic religion. I am a big believer in the separation of church and state. I'm a big believer in our constitutional structure. I mean, I'm a law professor at the University of Chicago teaching constitutional law. I'm a great admirer of our founding charter and its resolve to prevent theocracies from forming and its resolve to prevent disruptive strains of fundamentalism from taking root in this country. As I said before, in my own public policy, I'm very suspicious of religious certainty expressing itself in politics. Now, that's different from a belief that values have to inform our public policy. I think it's perfectly consistent to say that I want my government to be operating for all faiths and all peoples, including atheists and agnostics, while also insisting that there are values that inform my politics that are appropriate to talk about. A standard line in my stump speech during this campaign is that my politics are informed by a belief that we're all connected, that if there's a child on the south side of Chicago that can't read, That makes a difference in my life, even if it's not my own child. If there's a senior citizen in downstate Illinois that's struggling to pay for their medicine and having to choose between medicine and the rent, that makes my life poor, even if it's not my grandparent. And if there's an Arab American family that's being rounded up by John Ashcroft without the benefit of due process, that threatens my civil liberties. I can give religious expression to that. I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. We are all children of God. Or I can express it in secular terms. But the basic premise remains the same. I think sometimes Democrats have made the mistake of shying away from a conversation about values for fear that they sacrifice the importance, uh, the important value of tolerance. And I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. So then God Girl asks, Do you think it's wrong for people to want to know about a civic leader's spirituality? Obama, I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's wrong. I think that political leaders are subject to all sorts of vetting by the public, and this can be a component of that. I think I am disturbed by, let me put it this way, I think there's an enormous danger on the part of public figures to rationalize or justify their actions by claiming God's mandate. I think there's a tendency that I don't think is healthy for public figures to wear religion on their sleeve as a, as a means to insinuate themselves from criticism insulate themselves from criticism or dialogue with people who disagree with them. So then God girl asks the conversation stopper. When you say you're a Christian and leave it at that, Obama says, where do you move forward? Where do you move forward with that? This is something that I am sure I have serious debates with my fellow Christians about. I think that the difficult thing about any religion, including Christianity is that some is that at some level there is a call to evangelize and proselytize. There's the belief, certainly in some quarters, that people haven't embraced Jesus as their personal Savior and that they're going to hell. 
She asked, do you believe that? I find it hard. This is Obama. Listen to this. Regarding whether or not uh, somebody has to be a Christian uh, or they're going to go to hell, Obama says, uh, I find it hard to believe that my God would consign four-fifths of the word world to hell. I can't imagine that my God would allow some little Hindu kid in India who never interacts with the Christian faith to somehow burn for all eternity. That's just not part of my religious makeup. Part of the reason I think it's always difficult for public figures to talk about this is that the nature of politics is that you want to have everybody like you and project the best possible traits onto you. Oftentimes that's by being as vague as possible or appealing to the lowest common denominator. The more specific and detailed you are on issues as personal and fundamental as your faith, the more potentially dangerous it is. God Girl then says, do you ever have people who know you're a Christian question a particular stance you take on an issue? How can you be a Christian and? Obama says, like the right to choose. He says, I haven't been challenged in those direct ways. And to that extent, I give the public a lot of credit. I'm always struck. I'm always stuck by how, met, how much common sense the American people have. They get confused sometimes, watch Fox News or listen to talk radio. That's dangerous sometimes. But generally, Americans are tolerant and I think recognize that faith is a personal thing and they may feel very strongly about an issue like abortion or gay marriage. But if they discuss it with me as an elected official, they will discuss it with me in those terms and not say, as, you're, as you call yourself a Christian, I cannot recall that ever happening. So the God girl then asks, do you get questions about your faith? Obama says, Obviously, as an African-American politician rooted in, African -Amer in the African-American community, I spend a lot of time in the black church. I have no qualms in those settings, in particularly fully in those services, and celebrating my God in that wonderful community that is the black church. But I also try to be rarely in those settings do people come up to me and say, what are your beliefs? They are going to presume, and rightly so, although they may presume a set of doctrines that I subscribe to that I don't necessarily subscribe to. But I don't think that's unique to me. I think that each of us, when we walk in our church or mosque or synagogue, are interpreting that experience in different ways, are reading the scriptures in different ways, and are arriving at our own understanding at different ways and in different phases. So let me pause for a second here. Barack Obama is basically talking about, he's, he's one of these guys that's cobbled together his own religion. Okay. I, he, let me continue. He says, I don't know a healthy congregation or effective minister who doesn't recognize that. If all it took was somebody proclaiming, I believe Jesus Christ and that he died for my sins and that was all there was to it, people wouldn't have to keep coming to church, would they? God girl then asked, do you believe in heaven? Obama says, I do believe in, I, do I believe in harps and clouds and wings? God girl says, a place spiritually that you go after you die. Obama says, what I believe in is that if I live my life as well as I can, that I will be rewarded. In other words, Barack Obama does not know the gospel. He says, what I believe is that if I live my life as well as I can, that I will be rewarded. I don't presume to have knowledge of what happens after I die, but I feel very strongly that whatever the reward is in the here and now or in the there in the hereafter, the, that aligning myself to my faith and my values is a good thing. When I tuck in my daughters at night and I feel like I've uh, been a good father to them and I see in them that I am transferring uh, values that I got from my mother and that they are kind people and that they are honest people, that they are curious people, and that's a little piece of heaven. Oh, God girl then asks, do you believe in sin? Obama says, yes. And then she says, 
well, then what is sin? Obama says sin is being out of alignment with my values. Let me read that again. What is sin? Obama. Being out of alignment with my values. I thought sin was uh, <clears throat> being out of alignment with God's values. We're almost done here. Uh, so God girl then asks, what happens if you have sin in your life? Obama says, I think that it's the same thing as the question about heaven. It's the same way that if I am true to myself and my faith, that that is its own reward. When I am not true to it, it's its own punishment. So where do you find spiritual informa- uh, inspiration? She asked music, nature, literature, people, a conduit you plug into Obama. He says, there are so many, nothing is more powerful than the black church experience, a good choir and a good sermon in the black church. It's pretty hard not to be moved and transported. I can be transported by watching a good performance of Hamlet or reading uh, Toni Morrison's uh, song of Solomon or listening to Miles Davis. So then God Girl says, is there something that you go back to as a touchstone, a book, a particular piece of music, a place? Obama said, as I said before, in my own sort of mental library, the civil rights movement has a powerful hold on me. It's a point in time where I think heaven and earth meet because it's a moment in which a collective faith transforms everything. So when I read Gandhi or I read... Uh, King, or I read certain passages of Abraham Lincoln, and I think about those times where people's values are tested. I think those inspire me. So God Girl then asks, well, what are you doing when you feel the most centered and most aligned spiritually? Obama says, I think I already described it. It's when I'm being true to myself. And that can happen in making a speech, or it can happen in me playing with my kids, or it can happen in a small interaction with a security guard in a building when I am recognizing them and exchanging a good word. So then God Girl asks, is there someone you would like, uh, that you would look to as an example of how not to do it? Obama says, Bin Laden. God Girl then says, as an example of a role model who combined everything you said and you want to do in your life and your faith, Obama says, I think Gandhi is a great example of a profoundly spiritual man who acted and risked everything on behalf of those values and never slipped into intolerance or dogma. He seemed to always maintain an air of doubt about him. I think Dr. King and Lincoln, those three are good examples of for me of people who applied their faith to a larger canvas without allowing that faith to metastasize into something that is hurtful. God girl then asks, can we go back to that morning service in 1987 or 88 when you have a moment that you can go back to that is an epiphany? Obama says, it wasn't an epiphany. It was much more of a gradual process for me. I know there are some people who fall out, which is wonderful. Uh, God bless them. For me, it was probably because there is a certain self-consciousness that I possess as somebody that will with probably with probably too much book learning and is also a very polyglot background. So God girl then says it wasn't like a moment where you, you finally got it. It was a symbol of that decision. Obama says, exactly. I think it was just a moment to certify or publicly affirm a growing faith in me. Now that I think gives a far better idea of what it is that we are dealing with with Barack Obama, the the man who self-identifies as a Christian. What do we have? Sin is when he's out of alignment with his own values. He does not, he, <laughs> he does not like dogma. He is like a postmodern emergent and doesn't like certainty and, and wants to embrace doubt. And, um, 
as a result of it, I would basically say what we're looking at here is somebody I think is uh, very spiritually confused and uh, probably not, not much different than uh, George Bush. And, uh, but there are some serious problems here. In fact, so much so that I'm going to end up having to write an article about this for uh, the February 2009 uh, copy of the Pirate Christian Radio Journal. Stay tuned. There's much more coming up. I'd like to thank you for listening to Fighting for the Faith. We are sadly at the end of our program and want to remind you that uh, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you are getting value from this program, then uh, we would need you to support us. And you can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the donate uh, button, or you can send us uh, a check, and you can do so at Pirate Christian Radio, Post Office Box 791, San Juan Capistrano, California, zip code 92. Six nine three, and we are at the end of our show. And if you'd like to email us, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Thanks for staying with us, and until tomorrow, may God bless you.